Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. So love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, generosity, self-control, kindness, kindness, kindness. Um, I'm, I'm, I find myself wondering at the outset of this hour, and by the way, good morning for those of you joining us in the second hour of this morning's Mornings with Carmen. Um, I'm reminded of uh, the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit includes kindness, and my kindness barometer friend uh, is Nicole Phillips. You can find her at NicoleJPhillips.com. Nicole, welcome back. Hi, Carmen. Well, I'm glad I get to be the kindness barometer for you. <laughs> so, I you know, like I, got the, I got like a generosity barometer and I got a goodness yeah. barometer and you're my kindness barometer. So help us uh, get in touch with some kindness today. Yeah, we need those people in our lives. And I'm glad that that people share stories because then I, I avoid the self-control well. barometer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky one. one. I'm still working on that one. So, all right. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, 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 no. There was a a woman in Portland, Oregon, who came to the Mayo Clinic recently to just get um, a refresh, a recheck on her treatment, and she met up with a radiation therapist named Jen. And Jen struck up a conversation with her, just trying to make her feel calm and and okay, you know, in the midst of all the scariness at the at the clinic and. Well, the woman said to Jen, you know, I'm excited to be in Minnesota because I, I really want to see fireflies. I've never seen them before. And she said, where can I find fireflies? <laughs> like, you know, go down to the closest pub or whatever. You'll find them. They'll be there. Um, so, so Jen was like, gosh, where, where do you just find fireflies? So she asked some of her, her therapist friends and um, they, they put together some ideas for this patient. Well, that night Jen was home and she was standing in her kitchen. She looked out the window and there were fireflies everywhere. And so she gathered up her children and a Mason jar and she went outside and collected all kinds of fireflies. And then she Googled how to keep them awake alive for the night. And the next day she took them in to the patient and, uh, she wasn't able to see the patient because, um, they, they were on different areas at that time. But she gave it to another therapist and said, if you see this patient, would you please give it to her? Well, the next day that patient came back and found Jen and told her how delighted she was to have been able to see fireflies for the first time and just how important that was to her experience with all the with all the chaos going on. And I thought, you know, isn't that it? Like it didn't cost Jen anything, but just to listen, just to listen, to listen, to listen and say, I see a need and I can fill it. I love that. So um, that actually reminds me of this really beautiful firefly scene in the animated version of the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and so uh, it, 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 I just, I love the, when God uses things in nature to not only remind us of his presence and um, and touch us, but how we as 
people created in his image have the opportunity to not only point to, but then use what God has given us um, just in, in acts of simple kindness toward others. So thank you so much, Nicole, for that kindness story. Again, you can find her at NicoleJPhillips.com. We'll be right back. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without Christ. So I wonder when is the last time that you have been to the emergency room and what you encountered when you were there? Um, we we have these uh, now highway road signs, you know, big billboards that actually have these countdown clocks on them. And they're, they're advertisements for uh, local hospitals. And they're, you know, they're telling you what the ER wait time is at particular at particular uh, emergency rooms uh, across, uh, you know, across the area. So I'm wondering when's the last time you went to the ER? Why did you go? What did you experience while you were there? How long did you have to wait? And were you surprised at really the the breadth, the diversity of needs that people enter with and and how few, how many of them enter alone? Those were some of the things that really struck me the last time I was in the ER uh, here in the city where I live. Uh, with me now is Dr. Brett Nix. He is an ER physician. Uh, he is also working with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Dr. Nix, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So when's the last time you were in the ER? Well, the, the question is whether I was there as a patient <laughs> or whether as a physician. If it was a physician side, it was yesterday. I got home uh, probably about midnight last night. And so uh, to your point, it is an absolute uh, chaotic environment. It is the place where no one wants to be. Uh, but at the same time, most people need to be there at some point in time because of events that happen in life related to health care, related to trauma, and related to uh just uh, sometimes being the wrong place at the wrong time. So I had a friend in um, in seminary uh, who who talked about a woman who he knew in his community back home, um, who that was her context for ministry. When she couldn't yeah. sleep, when she suffered insomnia, and when she couldn't sleep, she'd just get in her car and she'd just drive to the ER. And she would just sit in the ER waiting room and simply minister as a, you know, as a, as a person who was present in, in peace and, um, with empathy, and that was her context for ministry because everybody who arrives uh, at the ER is in crisis, often in trauma, and those who are with them are in a different kind of crisis and trauma. Um, so just in very fascinating context for ministry. Uh, I'm wondering, as a as a Christian who is an ER physician, has that been your experience? Has the ER really just been your context of ministry? It is. It's an incredible environment. Take a minute just to think about the last time anybody has been in the emergency department or you get a phone call about a family member or friend who happens to be there. It's an environment of uncertainty. It's people coming in and many times expecting the worst. And regardless of where we are in society, uh, it's a place that welcomes anyone. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year long, patients can come in at any point in time. And so we see people that are there with extremes of illness. We see people there associated with trauma. We see people there that have uh, had issues related to uh, lifestyle choices that they've made. And the ability to have a conversation with people to show that you care and at the same time provide a healing touch, uh, maybe some direction, uh, and oftentimes reassurance is one of the most amazing things you can do. And, uh, you know, when I walk into a shift, I think to myself and, you know, and I ask just for a level of clarity is I know that I'm going to see a lot of patients that day. But I always firmly believe that there's one patient that's going to be there 
that I need to have an extra moment of time, an extra moment of patience to have a conversation with them uh, about the life challenges that they're facing and see if there's a way of having an impact. All right. So you and I are going to get to some headlines here in just a, in just a minute. But I would um, I'd love for you to share with us how we who are not in the ER every day can pray for uh, Christians who are in the ER every day. Boy, you know, it's, it's one of these things where the biggest challenge that we have is related to uncertainty. And the natural tendency, the way our minds work, is that we often think the worst. And so, you know, the prayers for clarity and the prayers for wisdom and patience really go a long ways. And that's not just for the patient themselves, but for the family members that have tremendous concerns and understanding that the process of identifying illness, diagnosis process is many times not quick. And just for people to have a sense of peace that is overpowering uh, of the uncertainty is probably the best thing. And to have people not, not being afraid to have an open conversation to share really the challenges that brought them forward to the emergency department that day, medically, socially, uh, environmentally, all of these things. Uh, but the prayers just for that. And then also for the people that work in the emergency department. Imagine working in a place where it is endlessly unpredictable. You know that patients will continue to come in. You don't know anything about them historically, and yet you have moments of time in between each patient that's seen and endless interruptions to have the ability to connect with the patient, the ability to diagnose them, and the ability to communicate clearly with them uh, regarding their care, their needs, and oftentimes asking those questions that are, that are, number one, not asked, and that information that is often not given to have the level of clarity and the level of patience, knowing that for most people coming to the emergency department, it is the worst day of their life. So um, Dr. Brett Nix and I are going to return to this conversation in just a moment. We're going to take up some headlines, but I want to lift up a prayer for uh, a listener who just texted in while we were while we were talking. Um, and uh, this, this listener is a caregiver for aging parents and is experiencing precisely what you're talking about. Uh, and and I think uh, experiencing real fear. So let's be praying for peace for one another uh, as we enter into the unpredictableness of this very day. I'll be right back uh, with Dr. Brett Nix. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Uh, Dr. Nix serves in the context of the emergency room. And Dr. Nix, I'd love for you to um, share with us if what we are uh, hearing and reading in the news is uh, aligns with your experience. We're reading a lot about just the uh, the rise um, of ER visits uh, by kids who are vaping using e-cigarettes. Can you can you tell us about your own experience? And then um, if you've got experience with us, tell us why e-cigarettes or vaping is just so bad for young people. If you look back, I don't know, go back to 2011, 2012, vaping was very, very early in its process, what we call e-cigarettes. And now we are nearly a decade down from that. And if you look at the growth, uh, statistics show that there's been almost a tenfold increase in use since 2012 until now. And what they find is, especially in the youth, uh, many of those that are using e-cigarettes still use tobacco products, smoking in traditional senses. The problem with these e-cigarettes is not only do they deliver nicotine that is sometimes uh, up to three times faster in the process of inhalation. It heats up the source, it has a delivery agent, and then it's inhaled. 
And so now you have not only the heating agent, but high, high levels of nicotine, which we know are not only an addictive substance, but have some secondary issues as it relates to uh, issues related to heart, so tachycardias, sometimes in high level issues for those that are sensitive, it can lead to issues related to seizures. And now in the news, you hear issues related to lung associated injuries. I think earlier last week, there was an announcement by the CDC after areas in Minnesota and Wisconsin had substantial numbers of young adults that were admitted into the hospital because of unclear lung injury. And it's likely to be attributed to the use of e-cigarettes and the variability with which they come. We find this on an increasing basis, and it is a trend that is seen as very, very cool within modern day society especially at-risk individuals in the middle school and high school ages. All right, so if you're a parent or a grandparent or um, a person who engages with kids pretty much anywhere, anytime, uh, this is a conversation you cannot avoid. You just you just cannot avoid this conversation. Um, and we're not talking about using scare tactics. We're talking about using real information. Um, there, There's plenty of research that's out there that's available um, there are plenty of doctors and other healthcare professionals who are ready and willing to have this conversation with you um, and with those kids. And so let me just let me just say as clearly as I can, um, this is a conversation we have got to engage in. This is um, this is becoming epidemic among middle school and certainly high school students across the country. Uh, and it's something that you and I actually have to step up uh, a conversation. We have to step up and step into um, as adults who are concerned about the welfare of our children, the body, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. This is a legit conversation for Christians to be engaged in, uh, in terms of the health and welfare of our families in the next generation. Dr. Nix, I'd love to talk with you about rural health care. We've got a lot of people listening right now who are listening across the rural upper Midwest of the United States. And they're, they're in places where it's a long drive to, uh, certainly to a trauma hospital, uh, you know, uh, but it's a long drive to um, for many people, even to uh, a hospital where there is, you know, a, a qualified doctor who's going to be able to to help them um, in their time of urgent need. Talk with us about rural health care in America. It's amazing. When you think about rural health care, you think about people that serve in very rural areas. Many are farmers. Many serve in you know maybe cattle population or other industries. And while they're serving a great uh, process for our country. At the same time, they are isolated from routine health care. They may be near a clinic, but as we know, the vast majority of rural facilities, hospitals especially, are in the process of either having closed or closing. And for those that are staying open, many times they are being stripped away of the standard processes available. So now you have individuals that are working hard on a daily basis that don't have the access to health care that you and I might if we are in a city or a suburban area where you have a new onset of chest pain or abdominal pain, the time to get to a hospital for evaluation is critical. And many of these individuals are going without. Over the last decade, more than 100 hospitals across the nation in these rural settings have closed. And we know that at this point in time, we believe another 500 to 700 at risk of closing. And when you look at the associated risk with that, yes, we have a wonderful emergency medicine service with ambulances and helicopters, but you still need the availability of somebody to evaluate in a prompt setting to assess what their underlying medical conditions are and to be able to move them upstream to the care that they need. So um, I have one other topic. I think we've got time for it. Um, and that's prescription drugs. 
Um, how do I, how do I, okay, so I don't happen to take any prescription medication of any kind, but let's say that I did. And let's say that I was taking more prescriptions than I really felt comfortable taking. And I really wanted to have a conversation with my physician about getting off of some of those. Tell us what that conversation looks like with a doctor. I think one of the greatest challenges we have is that in our society, many times we believe that when we have an issue that is medically associated, that the perception is that a prescription will help solve the problem. And when we have that, what we miss is the conversation about what other opportunities there might be to address the medical condition. Sometimes that falls on patient responsibility, things around uh, lifestyle choices, exercise, diet, and those types of things. But the greatest challenge that's often missed is simply this, asking your doctor, I'm on all of these medications. How many of the symptoms that I'm having right now are related to side effects? How many of these side effects are due to the number of medications that I have that might be actually working against each other? And sitting down with the physician and having a conversation, which is a difficult one and it takes time, that looks at, hey, what non-pharmaceutical strategies can I have to better my health? And could there be problems with the medications that I'm on and how can we reduce those needs? Having that conversation with your physician not only helps you in the short term, but there's incredible amounts of data that says as we age, these medication side effects are amplified and amplified with each year, with each decade of life. So the last time Dr. Stevens was on, and I know he's one of your colleagues at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, he actually sort of like coached us through how to get a longer appointment with our doctor so that we could have conversations that go beyond the, you know, the five or 10 or max of 15 minutes that that primary care physicians seem to be allotted for appointments today. Um, and so uh, thank you so much for your work at uh, the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Folks can go to cmda.org. There's a really interesting piece there uh, posted right now about research abuse, if that's something that interests you, abuse in scientific research. Again, cmda.org. Dr. Brett Nix, thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much, Carmen. Have a wonderful day. Appreciate it, Chris. Thank you. Blessings on you in the ER. Thank you very much, and welcome to anyone who comes. Hey, oh, amen, amen. I love that. That's just such a spirit of, of welcome. We'll be right back. So I like to talk with uh, Peter Kapsner about headlines that, um, frankly, none of my other guests are willing to touch. I don't know what else to say, right? So Peter and I are willing to engage in conversations about uh, some of the more zesty headlines that are out there. And so he and I are going to talk today um, about how we prepare our kids, how we protect them from the world and prepare them simultaneously for the world. And uh, as the as the school year gets ramped up again, we got lots of headlines about things that kids are being taught in in school that those of us who are operating from a Christian worldview like we are slack jawed. We are uh, our eyebrows are raised. Our uh, our mouths are gaping open because we can't hardly believe that these are the things that children are being subjected to as they return to school this year. And yet in the context of the culture, everybody's looking at us with furrowed brows saying, OK, what is wrong with you that you don't think all of this is OK? That's the conversation Peter and I are going to have next. Like, how do we as Christians who are parents prepare our kids for the realities of a worldly world um, when really we're interested in protecting them from it. So that's that's a conflict, but it's also something that we absolutely have to do. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Are you tired of policing your teen to make sure he gets his homework done? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Here's something I tell all the kids that live with me at Heartlight. I don't care about your academics. If you want to graduate on time, then graduate on time. And if you want my help, I'm happy to do anything I can. Now, you and I know that I'm greatly concerned about their academic work, but I make it their responsibility to get it done. They know I'm willing to help them in the process, but I'm not going to do the work for them. Let your child take responsibility for his schoolwork, even if it means letting them fail. The lessons learned from a D or F today will keep them from failing in the future. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Upside Down, Inside Out segment of uh, Mornings with Carmen. Here now with Peter Kapsner. We like to call what we do Fifty Shades of Truth. I also think that we might consider calling it Holy Moly Guacamole or something else. I don't know. I kind of like Inside Out, Upside Down. That was a good song. How are you, man? Good morning. That was pretty solid. And in your guacamole reference is always appropriate for me. That is like a top five food. And and I, Love I, it. I mean, do you know anybody who doesn't like guacamole? I mean, I guess there are. I, I don't there, know anybody I know who I like. Few. Yeah. So this is the way this goes. I don't know anybody who I like that doesn't like guacamole. Right. Right. And, and maybe yeah. that's an echo chamber of friendships <laughs> that we're talking about that they sort of get weeded out if they don't, you know, eat it at the party. But that's the way I roll too. <laughs> Okay, so um, I want to do a listener survey. So you guys can respond to this listener survey on our text line. The text line is 877-933-2484. This listener survey is about how high the corn is where you live. So if your corn where you live is only knee high, I need to hear from you. Um, If it's high as an elephant's eye, I need to hear from you. So I need some, uh, I need to know how high is the corn where you live? Uh, I know that you live in proximity to corn if you are listening to us on any of Faith Radio's live listening network stations, unless maybe you're in Hartford, Connecticut. Maybe you guys don't have corn. Now I will have somebody in Hartford or the larger Hartford listening area say, "Ah, corn, corn, we have corn. And they're going to go outside. They're going to measure it. And that's going to be great. And this is going to be our listener survey for this segment. 877-933-2484. Peter Kapsner and I want to know how high is the corn where you live? Peter, how high is the corn where you live? You know, I love that, Carmen. And we are right on the edge of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. If I drive about five minutes west, I will be in fields and fields of corn. So I will go ahead and measure that later. But with the amount of rain we've gotten in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, another five inches in the last week or so, I mean, we're building arcs around here and uh, and just wondering when the apocalypse is happening again. But I'll tell you what, it is great for the crops for the most part, unless the field gets flooded and then it drowns everything. So I'm kind of curious myself uh, how high the corn is. I will go check it out later today. So uh, too much water is bad for tomatoes. Is too much water bad for corn or no? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, unless yeah, it makes your field soggy. I don't know. Yeah, right. Paul's yeah, yeah. weighing in. Paul's saying yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm. We grew corn. Too much rain makes for a very bad corn crop. All right. So 
All right. All right. That's all in that's all in my shout out to just how hot it's going to be today. That was really I, it's my segue to weather and I don't have anything else to say about that. So let's talk about what you and I uh, thought we were going to talk about today. So, Peter, as kids are going back to school, um, parents are facing a real challenge. We want to protect our kids as best we can as Christians from all of the influences of the spirit of the age. However, our kids have to operate and function in the reality of the real world, where obviously the spirit of the world dominates. So let's just talk a little bit about um, uh, what kids are experiencing as they return to the classroom this fall. Yeah, I, I, you know, Carmen, this is such a minefield in terms of parenting and, and what to do in these situations, because you know, what's happening is you have a combination of uh, school-sanctioned curriculum at very early ages on topics and sexuality that when you and I were growing up, we wouldn't have covered at all. And if it had been covered, it certainly would have been covered maybe at the ages of 15, 16, 17 in kind of health class for just a bit. And now we're talking about uh, kindergarten, first, second grade uh, with multiple options on sexuality and same-gender relationships, gender uh, transition and dysphoria, all of the topics you and I talk about pretty regularly in, in this. And so if you're a parent who would like to sort of, I mean, protect, that, that has such a negative word, except parents are meant to protect their kids, uh, at least to, to some degree for a, a wide range of their childhood. Uh, if you want to protect them, you almost can't. They're going to be exposed, whether it's through the curriculum or probably more realistically through conversations with their friends. And even more realistically than that, their friends that are actually engaged in transitioning a gender or uh, thinking about same-sex relationships. And so it is a really, really tricky time to be a parent. Uh, it's, it's a silly example in, in our own family. We've had a long-standing rule with my five kids that we start watching the Star Wars saga at the age of 10. That, that's the time that we felt like it was appropriate with some of the themes and some of the violence and some of what we see in movies that we absolutely love as a family. But my son, my, my last son, who's eight years old, and with the emergence of Star Wars again with all these different movies and TV shows, he was going to be with his friends and they were going to be spoiling, you know, all of the main sort of surprises in the storyline itself. So we decided, OK, we're going to have him watch at the age of eight. And and it was a different experience for him at eight. He certainly wasn't ready for, you know, Luke getting his hand chopped off and, and Qui-Gon Jinn uh, getting a, a lightsaber run through him. Some of these scenes were pretty shocking to him, but we didn't know even as parents what to do. And and that Star Wars thing is pretty tame compared to the conversations that are going to be had in school. And honestly, Carmen, if you told me here is or, or asked me here are three steps or three things you can do as a parent to protect your kids, I don't think I could come up with number one right now. The conversations are going to happen in the playground. They're going to happen in the classroom. And other than parents trying to start talking with their kids about these things, I don't know of another approach. And Last thing about that, kids aren't ready to talk about sexuality stuff at the ages of six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's not on their radar. They're not processing the world in that way. And so even as a parent, to talk with them about it is tricky. I'm sure if you did a parent survey and they all wrote in, they'd say, yeah, we don't really know how to talk with our kids about this stuff for sure. We feel pretty stumped. So I just jump in like I just, you know, I just kind of fearlessly jump in. I make sure it's a one on one like we're in the car. And you know, yeah. so n nobody's like, you know, it's not like eyeball to eyeball. You know, it's the comfort, you know, so you're side by side. You're you both have you can both look out the window if you need to. Um, and, you know, and I just say, look, I am obligated to have this conversation. It's like on the culture list. And so I'm throwing it out there. And you tell me if you want to talk about it. 
And and I'm just going to keep asking the question because I'm obligated to ask the question. But you can very quickly say, I don't want to talk about that. Or, yeah, people are talking about that and I want to talk about it. Or this is, you know, something that I heard that I don't understand. Um, so I just I just throw it out there. And I just yeah. do it periodically, you know, maybe once a semester, just to be sure that they know when they want to have the conversation, uh, they certainly can. Peggy, um, Peggy Nance, who I happen to like a lot, uh, posted uh, something this week about sending her son uh, off to freshman orientation at Virginia Tech. And um, it was really astonishing uh, in it terms was. of the things that she included in this. His name tag, which he is wearing, which says Virginia Tech at the top, and then uh, then his name, which is blocked out, identifies him as he, him, his, himself, and then as a general engineering student. So obviously uh, those are his preferred pronouns, but that's interesting. I found that curious. Can we talk about that when we come back? I'd love to. That'd be great. What kids are going to experience in college, even if you have protected them by homeschooling them all along the way, when we send them off to college, they're going to be in this culture. So we're going to have that conversation up next with Peter Kapsner. All right, so I'm talking with uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner about how to protect our kids the best we can, even as we're preparing them for the realities of the world that they are inheriting for uh, from us. We're thinking right now about college students. Peter has access to college students. Uh, he's uh, He works with them every single day. Um, so I'm wondering, Peter, do you see some students arrive from some pretty sheltered um, environments um, and then some who arrive who are pretty worldly wise and how do they interact with one another? How do they uh, how do they engage with the sort of the challenges of um, of the spirit of the age? Yeah, you know, I do, Carmen. I, I play sort of a little game in my head sometimes when I'm first meeting students and I might have a classroom of about 30 of them at, at any given time in which I, I try to predict um, after a day or two of interactions with them. Did they go to public school? Did they go to private school or were they homeschooled? And uh, I, you know, I would say I'm about 80 percent accurate at the end of the day once I find out some of that, because there, there are some characteristics that you begin to notice and note. And I'm not saying good or bad on any of those three. There just are, are different kinds of characteristics. And I, I think the healthiest version of the students that fall into any of those three categories are those students that have had parents who have, as you said in the last segment, taken the time, however awkward, uh, and especially at the ages of 15, 16, 17, to continue to have conversations with their kids about what they're reading, what they're seeing, how they're interacting with their friends, uh, what you just referenced in the name tag conversation, those kinds of conversations that are not easy at all to figure out how to get space for with your kids at times, those are the kids that are almost always the most thoughtful about these topics that are otherwise so paralyzing because they've had an opportunity outside of a classroom and studying it, or they've had an opportunity outside of just the sort of the, the herd mentality that can be peer relationships. They, they've been able to think through it a little bit more carefully and critically. And then from there, it doesn't really matter if they've been homeschooled or public or private schooled. The, the parental conversation is the single factor, I would say, that helps them adjust in these difficult conversations. But Boy, when they talk otherwise across um, public, private, and and homeschool, there really are some differences between the three. All right, can we change gears um, and talk about this headline that I read related to the Bachelorette? Okay, so I, right. I think that you and I talked about the Bachelorette um, uh, several weeks ago, um, 
And we now have the Bachelorette, who is supposedly a Christian um, and supposedly looking for a Christian spouse. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, basically saying that there's this widespread uh, practice among Christians and that widespread practice is premarital sex. I, I don't know. Yep. Do you want to jump jump into this? Well, jeepers, right? I mean, it's uh, the, the stats are somewhere in the neighborhood of 88 percent of young people who took a purity vow, which is sort of the primary express, uh, expression of how to deal with your sexuality in the churches is to make a purity vow to say you will not go too far. You will save yourself for marriage. That, again, would be the most common teaching across a variety of historically evangelical churches. And 88 percent of those students report that they have went ahead and had premarital sex. So in this situation, uh, again, now I'm just referencing back to my class. It, it's such a wonderful and, and sacred and difficult opportunity to be with these young people as they start cracking open with their stories in my sexuality class. And all I can say is that I ask them to reflect on their experiences and the papers that they write and how does the material that I'm teaching intersect with their life. And as they do and as they feel comfortable in the class, they do share uh, quite a bit about their background and uh, what they experienced both in church and in family and in their friendships. And I can verify that those stats, I, I think, are very much Accurate and sort of the rubble of it, Carmen. Probably the most common question that I get uh, is along the lines of So, can I ever be truly uh, pure and preserved for my marriage relationship knowing my sexual past? And what does it mean to walk through that? And what does it mean that the, the, the Good Friday cross in which Jesus died and the tomb that is empty that gives us hope in all things, how does that reality of the good news and gospel intersect with somebody's sexual past? Because I'm seeing the rubble of it. I'm seeing the kids that um, are just, they're wounded on so many different levels and confused and hurt. So you have the bachelorette very much celebrating the idea of, you know, Jesus uh, forgives me. Jesus still loves me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and have sexual relationship with somebody multiple times on a, on a national TV show. And I'm a Christian and it's all OK. And yet that message is very much contradicted by the messages that I get in my classes, again, where the students are like, I don't even know how to move forward with my life. I can't believe I went that far. It was just one night or it was this or it was a bad relationship or I felt pressured. And the stories are endless, but the result is the same. The kids are really struggling. So I think I want to respond with, um, you know, being sure that we recognize the power of redemption and the power For of sure. new creation and the power of, of forgiveness um, you can live redeemed of anything yes. that has happened in the past. Absolutely. Yes. Christ, uh, Christ is sufficient. The, the, the grace of God is sufficient to cover it all. It is. I think that the question that uh, what, what, what I find really confusing about um, the current witness and testimony uh, being put forth is that you could be a Christian. Let's use that word. You could be a Christian and you could be out there um, knowingly having relationships, engaging in, in sexual activities that are clearly contrary to God's expressed will in Scripture. And so yeah. I think it gets, to the, it gets to the conversation about what does it mean to claim the name Christ and what does it mean to be a Christian? For me, that's the deeper, the deeper question. Um, I mean, I recognize that Christians who are struggling with past sins, I get that. 
But I think it's good that they're struggling. Like, I yes. think we should struggle. I think, you know, sin is real. It sent Jesus to the cross. It held him there. Um, he bled and died. Uh, and not that we could just go and sin all the more. Yeah, and that I mean, you hit on two really important things, Carmen, and, and uh, we spent several weeks in class on a theology of redemption and hope that doesn't even have to do with sexuality per se. It has to do with how do you have a redeemed future that you're actually walking, walking and tasting of now in light of your past. But to your maybe more important point at this point is, um, since when did we begin to sort of celebrate or... Um, or just the idea of sin in our lives that it's like, you know, well, it's not that really that big of a deal. And and I think one of the things that I find, Carmen, is the message that we have in our culture. It's the primary message that defines how we raise our kids. And, and it's sort of encapsulated in the slogan, you can be whatever you want to be. And with that slogan, God over time becomes just sort of another power or another force in your life that is there in your own mind to enable you to sort of realize the dreams and the passions and and the hopes that you might have. And if this didn't work out, well, God will help me do this or God will help me do that. And God becomes subject to you in so many different ways when it's about you being whatever you want to be. And over time, uh, the the kinds of actions and activities in which we engage, they begin to get diluted. It's, it, you know, it's, well, uh, I'm just trying to figure out my way forward and hopefully God is along the way with me, as opposed to the primary invitation of the biblical text that we read about over and over again, is Jesus saying, follow me, become my student, become my apprentice, give your life to me. Your life is not actually your own to do with as you would. You, It's been bought with a price and you are a bondservant to the king. And and if we were if we were to parent our kids and teach our kids in our churches that this is the invitation, that you're actually giving up your life so you can find an authentic, true life of peace and love and hope and and the shining with the light of God's kingdom, it would be a very different message than the be whatever you want to be, where again God sort of exists to affirm your existing choices. Amen, amen. Uh, that's Peter Kapsner. Uh, he and I love uh, getting together and chatting. Thank you, my brother for bringing such clarity to the conversation. All right, when we come back, I'm going to give you the update on the height of corn across the country, uh, (laughs) and then we're going to wrap up this hour. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, so uh, so here is the the quick report. Pretty much only the people in Madison took on my uh, took on my uh, corn report challenge, uh, and so uh, we we now know that they just had a corn fest, and so I feel kind of sad I wasn't invited. Uh, it's as high as an elephant's eye, according to uh, those bearing witness in Madison, and they've had corn fest and they're celebrating. I also want to lift up a prayer request uh, that came in, um, and this is um, this is from Lorenzo. And let's be uh, let's be praying for our brothers and sisters who are serving in the kinds of context that Lorenzo is serving in. We talked with uh, ER doctor earlier in this hour just about the experiences that uh, that they have in the ER, and it's just such a context for ministry. I want to pray for Lorenzo in, in Sioux Falls today, listening this morning. Just lifting you up, brother, lifting you up for all of the things that you are um, that you are facing. Uh, in your life and just want you to know that we're here. We're your brothers and sisters in Christ and we love you uh, and we're with you as you enter into the challenges of this day. I want to echo that prayer for each and every listener out there today, no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing. uh, We face it together as fellow members of the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters, as as members of the Faith Radio family. 
uh, I just I just want to say, you know, thanks and blessings and be encouraged. And as you walk it out, we all walk it out uh, together. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.